This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode of Ready or Not is brought to you by the 10th Co. Creators of science-backed supplements for mothers by a mother. I equate a lot of my self-worth to my career. This kind of cliff of the unknown. I felt like I started drowning when she was eight months old. I just kept getting more and more depleted as she needed more and more of me. I hate jungle because it makes us sound like clowns. Like we really just move mountains as mum. For us to see a queer family was just not even an option as a young child. It's like constant whiplash. When you're a parent, it's like it's unrecognised praise. You're selfless. No one gives a shit. No one cares. No one sees it. There's a lot to love about mother, self-practice founder, creative director and consultant, Lauren Trent. She's incredibly relatable, but as a queer mother, she has a lot to teach us about inclusive language and what it's like to navigate a system that's not entirely built for you. Here, we talk the constant whiplash of navigating working and parenthood, surrendering to being at the whim of a tiny person's schedule, navigating a patriarchal system as a queer mother, and all the good bits, because as you'll hear, She's had plenty of those too. I'm Lucinda. This is Ready or Not. And here is the wise and warm-hearted Lauren Trend. Lauren, I've had a lot of discussions with friends about when the mental load starts for the birthing person, often the woman. When you're in a queer relationship... There's obviously an extra load to that. Is that something that you sat with for a long time before babies came to be for you? Oh, absolutely. I feel like it's something that was very much ever-present long before I even met Lucy, who's my partner, and my daughter's other mum. I'd always known that I wanted to have a family. It was something that growing up as a queer person, I was quite nervous about whether whether that would even happen for me and how it would happen because there's obviously, you know, a really big missing piece of that puzzle when we come to same-sex or um, queer parent families. And so it's been something that I've thought about pretty much since I've been a teenager and since I've been out and how that would one day become a reality or if it would be a reality for me. Um, and then when I met Lucy, I was really you know, I was thrilled to hear that she wanted to have a family. And it was something, it was a conversation that we had very early on because it was something that was really important to me. And I needed to know if I was going to, you know, be in a long-term relationship with someone that it was something that they also wanted for themselves. And, you know, Lucy was, she'd also shared with me that she'd never really thought about it as much as I had. And, it had never been a pressing thing for her, but when we got together, she was like, yeah, I'd love to have a family with you. So it was always something that we spoke about in the early years of our relationship and knew that it was going to kind of happen sooner or later. But yeah, that mental load and that planning process, obviously as a two-mom family, started really early on in the piece. And it kind of... As soon as we went into lockdown, which was about a year and a half into our relationship, we kind of looked at one another and were like, "What? we've got nothing else to do. Like maybe yeah. we should start like planning and see, see what our options are. And 
we knew that it was going to be like a long journey to even fall pregnant. And so we're like, at least if we've got an idea of what this could look like, we've, we've started that ball rolling and yeah, that's really when it started for us seriously looking into our options and getting some guidance because neither of us knew where on earth to start. Yeah, that's really interesting. That was going to be my next question is, did you, as someone that had been thinking about it, did you feel like there was any resources or anywhere to really well, go? Well, I felt like my knowledge of how two-mum family specifically got pregnant was like through very limited representation in TV shows and like the L word, like I saw Bet and Tina, like, you know, trying to find a donor and like do it at home and like trip men into sleeping with them. And so it was just this really like, like this idea of a turkey baster. And so I was like, oh, I know what I don't want it to be. And like, that makes me feel really anxious and nervous. And obviously, you know, trying to find a donor was a really big thing for us. And we kind of explored so many different hypothetical options of what could work, what, where our boundaries kind of were to lay and like what made us feel a bit uncomfortable. And it was a really, it was a pretty emotional time because we were not only considering like how we were going to get pregnant, but how in a year's time, in 10 years time, we were going to tell that story to our future children because there's just so much when we talk about mental load as a queer family, you know, that there's a lot of emotional work that's done and that will be done forever. Lucy and I, you know, we, when we started going through the fertility process, we spoke to a therapist, we were speaking to one another and we, yeah, we just weighed up so many different approaches that we could take. And it was really, yeah, I was surprised as to how little we both knew. I think that's a main thing here is like there was so you know we're among the first generation who are legally and openly and um are supported and allowed to have families that are recognized by law and so you know so many queer families have come before us but they've really had to go about it in their own way and you know set up frameworks or or legal situations on their own to protect their family structure Whereas we were really led by the professionals in, in terms of therapists and fertility specialists that were able to help us discern what was right for our conception journey and then our family planning process. That is so much of an extra layer, more than I could have ever even guessed before I asked you that question. So I'm really glad you shared that. It was a bizarre thing to think about, like sitting down with this child that doesn't exist yet and having to tell them their story of coming to be. And we're like, do we tell them that we did home insemination? And, you know, do we tell them that mummy and mummy went to the doctor? And what felt most comfortable for us was going, okay, we need that extra layer of support. Something about the clinical setting felt right for us just to go like, especially also like IVF is so much more common. While same-sex parent families might not be as common, at least Mila has the fact that she's an IVF baby in common with so many of her peers when she grows up. And that's like a unique story that's represented in media a lot. So that was really important to us that her story of coming to be was really similar to a lot of other kids her age. That's fascinating. So while all this is going on, you're having these thoughts and you're starting to plan, your career is also taking off in a really big way, both as a freelancer and as the founder of Self Practice. Can you tell us about your career pre-motherhood? 
So I was really fortunate. I feel like I had this perfect storm during the pandemic. I quit my full-time job in at the end of 2018. I was working in the interior design kind of as a creative consultant, interior design industry as a creative consultant. And then I went out on my own and started self-practice and had kind of a year of 2019 of really emerging that business, doing in-person workshops and, you know, brand activations. And then obviously, as we all know, the world shut down in 2020 and I moved the business predominantly online and everyone was just at home. And so I was so ready to sit with journaling practices or online workshops. And it was something for people to do during that year. So it was just like an incredible success of a year. Um, and so I felt incredibly lucky that the business had grown to a point where I was making a lot of residual income. So I thought, wow, this would be a perfect opportunity to start a family because the business is running itself essentially. And so I thought, amazing, like this is such an incredible opportunity. Lucy works in government. She's got a very different relationship with her career than I do. Like I very much run my own course and Lucy's in a nine to five. Um, and so we thought, you know, from a financial perspective, like we've got one full-time salary, one fluctuating freelance business owner salary, and that's kind of a perfect mix for us. Um, but then, of course, like life changes. We come out of lockdown, people's priorities shift, and I had no idea the toll that pregnancy was going to take on me. So I really just, like, I couldn't work. I was so unwell, but I felt really lucky that, not by luck, it was very much like a lot of hard work, but it was this perfect storm, as I said, that self-practice had kind of grown into something that could be very self-sustaining and didn't need me to equate time for money as much as a full-time role. So yeah, I was just like, thank God that that exists because if I had to work full-time while pregnant, I could not do it. I would have lost my job. So as a business owner too, then planning for parental leave can always be a bit challenging. I, as you say, you'd worked hard to get it to a point where it was semi-running itself, but it also still, I imagine, required a lot of you. How did you go about planning a parental leave? I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but I equate a lot of my self-worth to my career. I feel like it's just something that in some, you know, in some weeks it's great, in other weeks I really struggle with it. Um, but I knew that, you know, I needed to keep things ticking along um, so I just, I also, I struggled a lot with really quite intense antenatal anxiety and OCD during the later months of my pregnancy. And I just wasn't able to focus on work. All I was doing was cleaning. I was driving Lucy like completely mad. Like I was just like, I sat down at the GP. I was like, I need a mental health plan. We've got to get through this. Like, this is not good. And so I was like, I actually don't know. And I think a lot of anxiety stemmed from the fact of like, this kind of cliff of the unknown. Like I started to get really stressed about how I was going to manage everything and whether I was even going to enjoy being a mom. I felt like we'd invested so much financially, emotionally, logistically in just getting pregnant. Yeah, and for there was so a long doing on the line in that. Yeah, for so long doing IVF. Like in the early months of my pregnancy, I was so petrified of loss because we went through two rounds of IUI and we had this like horror false positive because I had no idea that if you test while you've had a HCG shot after 
are you are, that it will give you a false pregnancy test. So like a false positive. So we called all of our friends and family being like, we did it first round. And then like, we absolutely did not. It was just the injection still showing a false positive. So I felt like in the early months of my pregnancy, I was just petrified of loss. Then for so long, because the goal was pregnancy, I was like, oh my God, there's a baby at the end of it. Like this is, I had to like reframe my mind to be like, there's an actual human being coming into this world and I don't know if I can do it. Like for so long, it's just like the goalposts kept moving. And so, yeah, I was really, really stressed about how on earth I was going to manage running a business. My mental health at that point was pretty shaky. And I was like, I don't know what this is going to be like. And I feel like I had a lot of, you know, a lot of my work revolves around showing up online and less people, but they're like very quick to like DM you or respond to stories and be like, just sit down now. You like, you know, enjoy it. And I was like, I can't relax. Like, I don't want to sit down. I just want this baby out. Like people just can't say the right thing to you when you're like in the depths of like third trimester. Like we just like, get away from me. But I really started to be like, I prepared myself for the worst. I think I really was like, I've just got to get through this. This is going to be hell because everyone talks about how hard the newborn phase is. And yeah, I really prepared myself for the worst, which was hard. But I also think in a weird way, when Mila was born, I was so pleasantly surprised because she was an incredibly easy baby. Like I hate saying that, but she was just like a unicorn. She did not cry. She just slept. She sat there and I was like, oh my God. Oh, I've got this, like, this is amazing. And so our newborn period was blissful. And so I felt like I had the capacity to work. I wanted to work. I was, I'd just get my laptop out and I was like, I have got this covered. Like, this is easy. And then I felt like that gave me a false sense of security because she started growing up and I was like, I don't got this. <laughs> yes. But- the newborn phase in so many ways can be quite simple, even I mean, I know there's a huge scale there. There's really challenging newborn phases. Yeah. But then they start moving and you're like, how do I get anything done? And that's so funny because I, I really feel like Lucy and I, and I shared so many of my anxieties with Lucy, obviously being like, our life's going to change. Like everyone's telling us like to go and have dinner with each other. And like, we couldn't do any of that because we're in lockdown. So it was like pregnancy was just like... I don't know, I didn't get any of the joy of it. I didn't have a baby shower. Not that I'm like, I need that sort of attention, but it was sad not to feel like, like friends didn't even see me pregnant because it was 2021 lockdown and that was really hard. And it also gave me a lot more time with my own thoughts, which obviously wasn't helping at at the time. But yeah, I feel like when Mila was born and it was just this blissful, like we would take her out for dinner, like we we went to Gimlet for my 30th birthday and she was sat in the pram next to us and people were like, oh my God, you've got a dream baby. And we're like, yeah, how lucky are we? Like our life hasn't changed at all. But then obviously as they get older, your life changes beyond what you could even imagine. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I feel like so many people's experience from what I've you know heard from friends and even just media that you consume is like, those first six weeks are brutal, but if you can get through them, you can do anything. And that was, you know, I, I read a lot of the essays in the book, The Motherhood, and that was really just this idea of like the newborn phase as hell. But once you get through those first initial months, you'll be fine. And for us, for me specifically as the birthing mum, it was the other way around. Like I felt like I started drowning when she was eight 
eight months old and I was like, it's meant to be getting easier and it is so much harder than I than I could ever imagine. Eight months is exactly when I went through a period of not disliking my son. I love him, but I, I my relationship to motherhood changed a little bit at that exact time. What did making work work look like for you at that phase? Oh, Lucinda, it wasn't working at that stage. Like I was, to be completely honest, I kept things ticking over and I relied very heavily on the support of other people to help keep things moving. But I feel like what kind of happened with Mila's need for, you know, their demands get bigger as they get older. You know, that six to eight, even six to 12 months is like when they start moving, they could fall over at any moment. And you're just like constantly in like fight or fight, like what waiting for something bad to happen. And, you know, she's still breastfeeding. She's nearly two. And I just felt at that point in time, like this was like leading into last winter, I was just so depleted. Like I had lost so much weight. I was really struggling to keep up with her feeding. She is a very particular baby and still won't let Lucy settle her or like very seldomly during the night now to almost two. So I was the one doing all of the night wakes and I was just, I just kept getting more and more depleted as she needed more and more of me to like chase her around. So yeah, it, work just wasn't getting done or it was getting done, but not at the capacity that I was used to being able to invest into it. And any time that she was asleep, I was working. And so I was working two full-time jobs for nearly 18 months because it wasn't until then that she, Lucy ended up taking her delayed paid parental leave. She's a government employee. So she took those three months and that was honestly life-saving. Like, I think that was a real turning point in our relationship as parents, in my relationship to parenthood because I just didn't know how how much longer I was going to be able to do it. Oh, that sounded like an absolute blessing. Tell us about that time. So I guess Lucy until that point was the secondary caregiver and you were the primary caregiver. What happened and what did that allow you to do when Lucy took that leap? It was so transformative in so many ways. I think it was a really great moment for them to have together because you know, as babies do, they go through phases where like, and during that time, luckily, Mila didn't want a bar of me. Like Lucy was favorite parent. And so they just got to spend all that time together. I was still working from home. So I definitely wasn't like away at an office, like lots of primary carers are. And like, I couldn't tap out entirely, but it felt like I had the structure of a nine to five hour of a window of work and I would still put her down for a daytime nap and feed her and still be present. But it was like I had that uninterrupted time. And for me, that just felt like, oh, my God, I feel like a real adult again. Because oh, what it felt like freedom. Yeah, it really did. And even though, yeah, as I said, I was still very much present and we'd, some, we'd spend some days like going to the zoo with our grandparents and like that, I'd still have the flexibility of my, you know, of running my own business. But I was it's like I had the freedom that Lucy had had and I wasn't resentful of not having that, I suppose. And that, that was a really transformative time in our, in our relationship, as I said, as parents and together and for her and Mila to have. I interviewed Manon Petra, who is in a same-sex couple and as she puts it, the other mother, the non-birthing mother in that partnership. And I asked her about 
maybe assumptions that I'd made that because biologically they were the same, that maybe she would understand what her wife was going through. And she said she didn't at all, that she doesn't think it's a gendered experience, that it's a lived experience being the birthing person. Was that the case for you? What do you think Lucy learned from stepping into that primary role? Oh, I don't want to speak on her part, but I feel like she's a very private person. I spend a lot of my time like online and I'm an oversharer. And so sometimes getting information out of Lucy, I'm like, how do you find me? Like, what is it like? But I know during that time, she found it very physically. She took it, it took a real physical toll on her. She also is living with rheumatoid arthritis. So a lot of our the division of our roles as mums is quite different. So Lucy has a very limited physical capacity of how much she can do during the day before she needs to really lie down and take care of her body. So that is often at play within how we're divvying tasks in the household or, you know, who's caring for Mila. And so oftentimes that means like Lucy's cooking dinner while I'm taking care of Mila. And that can be quite hard because like I see or like Lucy's walking the dogs while I'm getting Mila ready for daycare and out the door and I feel like so much of my time is spent with the baby and so much of her time is spent doing things that need to take care of her physical body and I'm like that's voice to me yes (laughs) going for a walk and cooking dinner like without a toddler around your ankles and so but that is just the reality of our situation and that's the reality of so many parents who are dealing with differently abled bodies and different work schedules. After becoming a mother, I distinctly remember when that sense of exhaustion sunk in. I remember it catching me by surprise and I quickly realised that I'd been running on adrenaline for months and months after my son's birth. Postnatal depletion affects over 50% of mothers and the effects can last for up to 10 years after giving birth. What many new mothers like me don't know is that if they don't replete and recover from the early phase of motherhood, they will feel the effects for years to come, with even their menopause being impacted. That's why the work of The Tenth Co, created by mother Frida Olgars in collaboration with Dr Oscar Serilach, is so important. Just because extreme fatigue and all that comes with it is common in motherhood, it doesn't mean it's normal. And their top-rated product, Flow State, works to relieve fatigue, support energy production, calm the mind, and support healthy mood balance, hair, skin, and nails. Listeners of Ready or Not will receive $15 off their hero product, Flow State, using code FEELMOREREADYTHANNOT at thetenthco.com. Yeah, I think pregnancy was a really nice journey for us both because Lucy had never had that like desire or urge to carry and she'd never considered herself someone like overly maternal. And she also wasn't sure about, not that she didn't want Mila at all, but seeing her become a parent and she has shared with me, like she just wants everyone to experience that because she just has the most fun ever and watching her be a parent is like, the greatest joy I've ever known because it's someone that you you know you love and they're they're forming their own bond with their child and that's just it's magic and so Mila started I think kinder recently how yeah she's gone into an early learning center that again has been like life-changing I feel like until we had some consistent support in terms of care for her things were just going to keep going like they were going but 
I was feeling incredibly burnt out. Lucy was doing as much as she could around her existing work commitments. And we relied very heavily on the support of grandparents for a long time. We had Mila on the list for childcare the week since the week she was born. And, you know, as everyone knows, there's just such a shortage when it comes to childcare availability. And so she'd been on the wait list for private centres, public centres. Um, we looked into getting a nanny for quite a while, but we just couldn't find the right person. Um, and then very serendipitously a spot came up at a private center which is really close to where we live and I was like let's go let's take it (laughs) let's go and she was also really really ready for it in a in an ideal world we would have started earlier to make the transition a bit easier because she's obviously nearing to she's very aware she's got really secure attachment with her mums and so it made that transition she's only two two months in but it made that transition quite difficult but she is there three days a week now and she's having the time of her life and she's just got focused energy, attention, activities. And I felt like I, not that I was failing her, but I just felt so burnt out and, you know, the juggle between, and I hate juggle because it makes us sound like clowns. Like we really just move mountains as mums. Like we just, we're not juggling things. We are making whatever we, moving whatever we can to just get through the day and get the bills paid. But I was, I'd noticed my attention span for her really start to dwindle. And that was making me really sad because I was obviously, my nervous system was just at capacity. And since her being in care or having that early learning center experience, every time that she comes home, I'm just so present with her. And it's made me such a better mum to have that support. And not to mention like their learning just goes like bananas when they're around other kids and other people. It's incredible, isn't it? And it's a great reminder because I think a lot of the time in the lead up, we can feel as though we're doing daycare just for us, but it's not just for us. No. And that's the thing is like, we see her come home and she's like learning new words every day and she's it's so funny like she's just becoming this little person and is developing at such a faster rate had she just been spending all of her time with me or you know there's only so many times that you can go to the children's gallery oh, like, yeah. you know, I felt like I was just like zoo children's gallery like getting through the day and like that brown dog day of parenthood yeah it's it's really nice for both her and us as her mums to have to know that she's in the best place that she could be and is getting you know social interactions like it's it's phenomenal it's been really really nice yeah and a lot of people that I've interviewed that are in same-sex couples and that are parents they have the same no-go question which I totally understand but it's actually not a question I would ever think to ask and that is around choosing the donor and getting really specific on that donor conversation. Why do you think society is still so obsessed with that? To me, you two are her mums. That's it. A lot of, a lot of heterosexual I wish everyone saw it like you, Lucinda. I feel like, like I, on one hand, I can really empathize with the curiosity and understand that there is obviously, um, you know, a donation somewhere, whether, or, you know, surrogacy, if we're talking about two dad families and, I can understand people's curiosity. I think it, it's quite different being curious and thinking about it in private, you know, but asking same-sex parents and crossing that boundary of feeling entitled to information that, quite frankly, like not to be rude, but like has nothing to do with you and you don't need to know. Um, it's just 
to, I suppose, air that curiosity. Yeah, I can understand that from that perspective, but we've been, we've had a really firm boundary not to talk about it. Obviously, like a lot of my work is social media facing. And so it's a question that's commonly asked and we have quite firm boundaries about what we do and don't share online when it comes to Mila. We're also, it's something that I speak about with Lucy a lot is we're also hyper aware that like queer families for us didn't exist. Like for us to see a queer family was just like not even an option as a young child or a teenager. So I share our family knowing what that kind of representation can mean for people. But yeah, as a mum, I'm, I'm cautious of sharing my child online. And so we have pretty firm boundaries, but it's a question we're commonly asked and our reasoning for keeping it private is because A, it's not our donor's experience into parenthood, it's ours. Like while we absolutely couldn't have a family without their generosity, they're not the parent. We are the parents and often people can really get language mixed up and think like, oh, who's the dad? And in Mila's case, she doesn't have a dad. We have, she has a donor. Um, but until people's understanding and education and language can keep up to a level of inclusion and respect, it's not something that we want to share because people can't help if they know who it is, people can't help but go like, oh, that's the dad. And that's not at all what we want. We don't want that experience because that's not the case. But we've found, and friends who have shared who the donor is, we've found that people are gossiping about the fact that that's who it is and people are sharing that information, which is just not not something we think is appropriate. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so earlier you touched on the conversations that you had to have even before conception about what will we say to this child that we don't yet have one day. You have this baby now, she's real, she exists and she's nearly mm-hmm. two. How does that conversation shift for you over time? I think it's always going to be shifting. Kids are inherently really curious and we've, you know, we don't live in a vacuum. We know that Mila's going to grow up and have questions and ask. And again, that's something that I've shared publicly is like we, we're not comfortable sharing anything about the donor or anything specific about that experience until it's a conversation that's had with Mila. Like it's her story. She should yes. deserve to know that first and foremost. And if she wishes to share that, then she can go ahead and share that. But it's not our story to tell. It's, And I think, you know, we're, we're in an era of parents sharing their entire parenthood journey. And I think that is incredibly helpful because it makes us feel less alone and less isolated. But we're also sharing so much of our kids online. And I'm a huge believer in that, like, I, I've signed up for this online, you know, sharing, but my daughter hasn't. And so... Some parts of her story really deserve to be kept private and yeah, until it's something that she's able to understand and that we're able to talk to her about, whether she chooses to share that with her friends or, you know, her colleagues later on, like it's, it's something that is, it's, it's inherently hers and it will be our future children's story as well. But yeah, we're really excited to give Mila a sibling soon because I feel like growing up in a two mum family, having a shared experience also is a really important thing for her to have and a really a non-negotiable for us was that all of our children will have the same donor so they have that shared experience um because yeah as I said earlier like we're among one of the first generations that are able to have a queer family that's recognized by law so yeah we're acutely aware of the fact that Neil is going to be growing up in a very heteronormative 
patriarchal society and if she can share that experience with a sibling or you know other kids that have a similar but not exact experience to her that's going to be really important and do you think as you say you are one of the first generations sort of paving this path but do you think over time that conversation will change and people will think less about who the dad is for example I really hope that it does. I mean, we're still, you know, I I don't think, and I'm very privileged to say this, I had never thought about my sexuality as much as I have since becoming a parent. And when I was pregnant, any appointment I went to was, oh, is, is the dad here? Or like just the overwhelming assumption that I'm straight. And I've been out since I was 17. Like I've had female partners my whole adult life. But until becoming a parent, it has never felt as oh, oppressive fascinating. this assumption that I'm straight. And so I yeah. constantly feel like I have to correct people or, you know, some days I'm really like, do I take on the role of educator here and tell the person that I just met at the park that Mila doesn't have a dad? And like, it's just, sometimes it can really feel like a lot. And I think if there's one thing that, the parenting space can do but just also like the world is like just not assume that anyone who has a child or any family is this kind of hetero household mum dad duo because there are so many different types of families there are so many single parents so many you know there are just so many different relationships that children have with their grown-ups and something that's you know really celebrated at Mila's Early Learning Centre is like it's the people who take care of children are just called their grown-ups and that's such a like inclusive way to include everyone whether it's aunts, uncles, grandparents, foster parents, two mums, two dads, mum, dad, whatever it is. So I think until language really starts to include all types of family structures it's yeah it's, it's an uphill battle but hopefully it'll it'll change soon enough. I really feel like the more representation that we have, which is why I'm really passionate about, you know, showing up in this capacity and sharing about our experience, even though sometimes, you know, being an introvert and like naturally wanting to just like cocoon, it can feel a bit exhausting having to be like, yeah, we exist. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's a really huge part of making not only Mila's life easier, but the lives of future queer people a lot easier as well. And this is something I hadn't thought of, but you're talking about going to these appointments and they're saying something about the dad. What's the first reaction that comes to you? Is it, do you feel annoyed? Is it sad? Absolutely. Defensive? What's the first feeling? It's almost like this shrinking into myself. I feel sad and then I think I'm furious and it's, it happens so much and the most in the medical setting. We have experienced it at the hospital at the Royal Children's whenever Mila's taken there. It's almost like like well, Lucy came to the, the clerk and was like, I'm here to see my partner. And they were like, where is he? I'm like, just all of these assumptions that, you know, and there's rainbow flags plastered on the door. And it's like... What a contradiction. Yeah, like it's not actually, you're advertising this space as an inclusive space. Staff have rainbow lanyards on and yet people are constantly misgendered. Assumptions are constantly made that all parents are in a hetero relationship and it's been the medical setting that's actually been like the most relentless. But I feel like, yeah, my first reaction is to completely contract inside myself. I'm someone that really avoids conflict. And so I think like, I'm not going to say anything, but then I take a deep breath and I'm like, if I correct this person calmly now, 
and I deal with the uncomfortability that this situation has brought about, they will be more mindful in making these types of assumptions for the next people who come through the door so they won't have to experience what we just have. And it's it's sucky in those moments where you're like sick or your baby's sick and you're seeking care. Well, Mila got her, uh, I remember it so vividly, we, we took Mila to get her four-month shots and the nurse was like, oh, beautiful blue eyes. Does she have mum's eyes or dad's eyes? And like, I had like froze and was like, my baby's screaming. Like, I don't, I don't know if I have the capacity to like take on the role of educator right now, but you've got her green book in your hand. You can see that she's got two mums. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what are you actually doing? That would be like, really it, frustrating. It takes two seconds to just have a look. They'd been our GP for years and this nurse had seen Miller before and it, it was just like, come on guys, there's, there's a, an air of like continuity of care that has to be provided here so that queer families feel safe. And I think, yeah, it, it's always a bit of salt in the wound when these places have like a trans or rainbow flag on the door and you're like, what are we doing? Yeah. Because, and you know, Lucy's fantastic. She works, she works in policy. So she's always pushing the needle forward and often she's the one to go, what are your policies around like queer cultural safety in the workplace? Because something needs to be done. We've just had this experience and it's not on. And so, yeah, often I'm the one to shrink inside myself, but I've really tried to not do that because if it makes Mila's life easier, I'm also like, she's a baby. Like she's not having to be privy to these conversations at the moment because she doesn't understand them, but she's going to go to a GP one day and someone's going to ask her about her mom and her dad or whatever it is. And so if she sees her mom's as she grows up advocating for the fact that our family is different and inclusive language is really important then that's just going to be second nature to her and she's going to see us have led by example and be equipped to handle those situations. We're often at our most vulnerable when we're in the medical setting too. So I can imagine that it's like an extra load as we talked about at the start of this episode. It's just one extra thing that you have to think about that hopefully with time will change. But time seems to take a long time, unfortunately. Yeah, totally. I feel like it's really important also for people to find community to talk through these really specific instances with and because you don't really understand unless you have gone through it so it's yeah it is that extra load and often I hear or see people talking about the mental load of parenting and we've got like the mental load of parenting in a heteropatriarchal society and what that looks like for queer safety and the queer families and finding community is a really big part of feeling less alone and that happens through shared stories like this so I'm really grateful that you're sharing stories like this well I'm really grateful that you're telling it so I have just a few more questions for you before I let you go so we've obviously sort of touched on I guess the best and worst not worst let's say challenging most challenging parts of being a parent that navigates paid work on the side or at the same time what are the best bits I think not missing much I feel like only now as Mila's nearing two I've while I've felt completely overwhelmed at times I've been so present for the first few years of her life and I've I've been able to be there and see everything and I feel like I know that child like the back of my hand and that's such a joy is to be I don't want to get emotional but like I just I have those years and that's that I'm going to look back on that and feel really grateful. But in the moment I was like, please help me. I'm drowning. But knowing, <laughs> yeah. I just, I feel like it's been, yeah, a joy to 
to witness her growth and to have seen it all. And now parts of her day are fragmented and I don't know. And I'm, I'm learning that like, my gosh, that was, it's crazy to not know about everything that you did today. Cause for so long, I've just known it all. Um, and that's been a real process. And I suppose a, a bit of a preview of your child growing up and becoming this little person that exists outside of you. And yeah, that's, where we're really entering that new phase as she grows up and yeah, knowing that I had those years so close to her as a baby. Uh, yeah, it's been a joy. And what about the challenges? What have you found most challenging in navigating work and parenting? I think being yanked out of what you're doing in the moment for something else. I, I just find it so hard. I think it's, it's so frustrating when you're like in the flow or you've got a day plan and then they get sick and you're just, everything shifts and everything changes. And I'm such a planner. And I, I really like, once I get working, I get in the flow and I find it really hard to get back into if things are shuffled around. And then I end up being like, well, today's a write-off anyway, but then I fall behind. So I think just feeling like, yeah, yanked out of either parenting or yanked out of mother, like yanked out of motherhood or yanked out of work and needing to like recalibrate and reshift focus on it, like in an instant has been, it's like constant whiplash. Um, and I feel, you know, and this, I'm not alone in this experience, but I feel like I don't give a hundred percent anywhere. It's like, yes. you're just, you know, fragmented wherever you are. Um, and for so long, I was trying to make the two things parenthood and my professional career happen in unison, but since I've really leaned into this idea of them happening in tandem, you know, one week, one will lead the other week, my career will come back again. And that's just the ebb and flow of this season of life. And to not hold on to the resentment that I can't give 110% in my career at the moment because I'm just in a different season of life and sometimes enough is enough and just getting through the day and doing as much as you can. But for a, a perfectionist and someone who feels like unless they're operating at 110% professionally, I'm like, I'm not doing anything. And so that's been a real challenge is to feel of value when I'm in the work of being a mum that no one sees because I'm so used to receiving praise for the work that I do. But when you're a parent, it's like it's unrecognized praise. You're selfless. No one gives a shit. No one cares. No one sees it. Your partner no might say fuck. thanks if you've got one. <laughs> like, but you are giving everything and it's completely unrecognized. And so that's a really different experience as, an, as someone, you know, in their adult life who's gone from studying, receiving academic excellence, going into uni, like killing it there, all these people telling you what a good job you're doing. And then you become a parent and it all happens behind closed doors and you think, fuck me, like, no one cares. Where's the credit? It's like the ultimate lesson in learning to let go of control, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Like a friend told me like parenthood is surrender and I was kind of like, yeah, like it is. And now I'm like, no, it actually is. Yeah. Like you can't control anything. And for a control freak, it's really hard. Like it's, you are at the whim of your entire day changing based on a tiny person's schedule or mood and yeah it is it's hard but it's it's a ride yeah it's like yeah it's one of the hardest parts of it but it's also like one of the best life lessons you can learn I think totally there are so many lessons and like not to sound naff or cliche but like especially being in the field of self-inquiry and self-development I really feel like 
I had not even scraped the surface before having a child. Like it, parenting is the ultimate mirror of your own shit, your own limit, your own capacity, your own, like it is just, I thought I had my shit together and things sorted out. And I'm like, no, I'm back in therapy. I need all of the support. Like it's crazy. It just shines a mirror on everywhere that you need to look or show up in a different way. And it tests you unlike anything else. And it also changes, you know, it changes everything. It changes the relationship with your friends, your partner, your the relationship that you have with your parents. I don't know about you, but I see my parents in a totally different light since becoming a parent. Totally. For better and for worse. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's just, it, it shakes everything up. And I think the most important thing is to feel like you have the capacity to not let it all take a hold of you and you can't do that unless you know you've got support otherwise it just like it it takes you for a ride but I feel like the only thing that has helped me feel a little bit more grounded in this experience is support that is very well said it's like you're inside my brain I have one (laughs) final question for you what do you wish you could teach people about LGBTQI plus families I think the one overarching lesson that would change the experience for anyone who identifies differently is employing inclusive language because there are no assumptions made and there is no so much of those kind of microaggressions are the assumptions that are made that everyone's straight and it's just not the case and so if you can use inclusive language whether it's not assuming someone's gender not assuming someone's sexuality not assuming that every child has a mum and a dad you give room for people to explain their unique story to you and whether they feel comfortable or not like so often I find myself now like Lucy and I've been engaged for quite a few years but I find myself really quick to call her my wife. So people don't assume if I say partner, I mean he. So I'm just using language that yeah, that's interesting. I'm letting people know that I'm a part of a two-mom family. So they're less likely to make that assumption before I've been able to. And so that comes from, like I'm using my wife this, my wife that, so people don't make those assumptions. And I think if, yeah. if people can really take a beat and not jump into the assumption that every family is the same or that every, yeah, every couple is the same or even just assuming people's genders and how they like to be referred to. It just gives people room to like open up and be their true selves without feeling like they need to correct you or, you know, choose whether or not to take on the role of an educator. It it will go such a long way and I think it just allows people to, yeah, let you in if they want to and minimize harm on a day-to-day basis. You've just made me realize that you probably spent a lot of time anxiously on the front foot so that you don't then get hurt. Yeah, that's exactly what I do now, especially especially since having Mila is the, the overwhelming assumption that I'm straight. And because I'm obviously quite femme presenting, like people are really quick to assume that because of the way that I look, I'm straight or that, you know, having a child, that other child's parent is a dad and Lucy and Lucy has the same experience. She's quite femme presenting. Often when we're together, people think we're sisters. Like it's just the last thing on people's mind is that these are two loving women in a relationship and that's hard. So we definitely, well, I personally definitely take the like, I'm going to get in first and minimize harm. 
hopefully that is something you won't have to do forever because I can imagine that that is really exhausting. Lauren, I've loved hearing your story. What you've created through self-practice is incredible too. Where can people find you online? Oh, thank you, Lucinda. I've loved chatting with you. It feels like catching up with an old friend. People can find me just on Instagram at Lauren Trend or they can find self-practice on Instagram as well at at self.practice and selfpractice.com.au is where most of it lies. But thank you again. It's been, yeah, it's been such a lovely, lovely morning. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Of course. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.